Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Unconventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thanks for downloading the first episode of Season 2 of the Unconventional Soldier podcast. Today, Colin and I are talking to Steve Kiley, who was the HAC, or the Honorable Artillery Company's, Chief Instructor from 1999 to 2002, running their patrol selection course. We will cover the contents of the course, some of the changes then and now, a little about the reserve soldier and some of the background into the HAC. Both Colin and I served as permanent staff instructors with the HAC, so we have some experience of our sister organisation. But before we break into that, as normal, we will start with our guest's military biography, leading up to when they volunteered for the selection course and, and for Steve's case, when he joined reserve forces. So, Steve... A little bit about you, please. Uh, thanks, thanks very much for that, Kev. And uh, evening, Carl. Uh, All right. Um, so I uh, first became aware of the HAC um, in the early nineties, and I uh, passed the recruits course in ninety two, and then went from there on to what was called the Battle Selection Course. It used to be called BSC, um, and then from there um, I went into uh, two squadron. At that time, the HAC had three patrol squadrons that uh, were all in the uh, surveillance and target acquisition uh, OP patrol role. Uh, and then I did various things with the the, the regiment through different uh, courses and cadres and exercises. Um, you mentioned on a previous podcast the uh, the LERPS school in Vinegarden. I did uh, I did a LERPS course there. I, di- I, I didn't do the uh, the winter one, the winter combat and survival, which was known as winter Weight Watchers because uh, everyone came back about four stone lighter. The man's course. The man, yeah. the course. <laughs> so, so, some people probably said I could have done with that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, various bits and bobs. And as you quite rightly said, I then uh, I instructed on the recruits course because the HAC at that time 
uh, phase one recruiting was all done in-house, 100%. Um, and I instructed on that in various guises. Then I was an instructor on the selection course, which by that time had changed its name to patrol selection course. Um, and I was there when the first uh, 473 PSI, permanent staff instructor, was, was, was posted to that course. I think before that, Cole, when, when you were there, you were recruits and guns, weren't you, with the gun troop and... Yeah, that's right, mate. It was it was a bit of an unknown quantity when four seven three got posted down there, and it, it was quite interesting in that um, you were very well resourced at the HAC because each squadron had its own Hereford PSI, yeah. which I think were W one. So you had I think three or four Hereford W ones, and you had a Hereford training captain. So I turned up from four seven three and was. Uh, looked at with a bit of scepticism and had to sort of set the ground for the other follow-on instructors. So, yeah, I ran a recruits course. And then once we proved our metal, uh, the guy that followed me – was that you, Kev? I can't remember now. Was it? No, Chris, Chris took over you as a recruits course because I'm the first official PSI oh, had to who get did the that, patrol selection course. So, yeah, so we had to sort of set, prove ourselves and, uh, you know uh, – meet the standards that the HAC thought they were looking for at the time. To be fair, yeah. it was ridiculous uh, putting a – it really was the epitome of putting a square peg in a round hole, asking a 473 sergeant to uh, teach drill to recruits um, and, and, and not doing the uh, not doing the patrol soldiering. It was a bit bizarre when you look back. Uh, so thank God that was changed and uh, people saw there was a better fit. Um, so anyway, so I did that and then I was back in the squadrons doing various bits and bobs. Um, I, was, I became um, squadron sergeant major of two squadron, and then in two thousand and four, I, uh, I went on uh, Operation uh, Telic Four. Wrong, Telic Five. I was Telic Five, um, and that was that was very interesting for the HAC. So the HAC patrols that have been on three and four have been part of the uh, Brigade Recce Force, um, as Kev will know, because I think he, he he met some of them out there. In um, uh, a Basra Palace, Kev, I think, wasn't it? When when you were out there with them, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but we were. The, it was the first time that the HAC was part of what became known as Brigade Surveillance Company. So that company was fifty percent HAC and fifty percent Welsh Guards. Um, so I was the first company sergeant major from the HAC, I believe, uh, posted on operations since World War Two. Um, there'd been troop sergeant majors and things like this before, but the first company sergeant major. Um, so that was, um, I, I saw that as, uh, as a privilege and, and an accolade and, uh, thoroughly enjoyed, uh, my, uh, my almost year with the Welsh, with, with the Welsh Guard contingent as well. Um, and you've got quite a, quite a history with the guards within the HAC as well, because not only did you have all those Hereford PSIs at the time and the, and the gunner element from 473 and obviously the gun troop had a, sergeant uh from a gun regiment as well the rsm was a guards rsm yeah. and i think the 2ic was guards and the adjutant was gunner as well so it was a real mixture of influences i mean I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this in a minute when i give you a, a quick two minutes on the history of of the regiment but the, the hac uh, even to me i mean I, I was i was 20 years in hac man and even i still look back and think um, it's an it, it, it is the oldest regiment in the British Army, yet it is a curious mix of gunner and household division. Um, the, the, the core of drums wear the blue, red, blue flash, uh, and, and and have the uh, the grenade cap. You know, we have the grenade cap badge on the on 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 uh, forage caps of uh, of NCOs and ORs. 
Um, it's 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 really it's a really weird uh, mixture of the two. Uh, but anyway, that was a, that was a that was an interesting tour. Uh, and then I came back from that and um, I was going to leave the regiment and I kicked about not doing very much for a thick end of a year. Uh, and then they convinced me to um, go to Sandhurst, do the late entry officer commissioning course. Um, and as a captain, I became OC of the patrol selection course. And I was on patrol selection course for another two and a half years. Um, and then I finished my time in the regiment as 2IC of three squadron which at the time was uh, the training squadron. So I officially stepped off um, from the HAC in 2012. So almost to the day, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd done 20 years. Um, and, and during that time, I'd, done every, I'd been on ops. You know, I'd done all the courses I wanted to do. Um, I'd, soldiered, I'd, I'd soldiered a lot with 473 on exercise uh, and come across them on courses quite a bit. So I was always very keen on the 473 connection and um, trying to foster uh, better relations and continuing relations for the uh, for the benefit of both units, I suppose. And I think that's been reciprocated because Scott in his <coughs> pod last time clearly indicated the, his feelings about that strength of that relationship between the two units. In fact, I, t- I mean, it, it amuses me. Went so um, before we were actually deployed to Iraq in uh, in '04, the HAC contingent did the um, the COTAT course down at Lid. Um, you'll tell me what that abbreviation is. Was it close observation, tactical, and training? Training, training advisory team. I think that's it. Was. Close observation, training advisory team. So everything to do with static, covert observation, wasn't it? So um, myself and one of the other officers from the HAC, we, we we did the controllers course, um, so the mission managers course uh, down there, and then the whole HAC contingent came down and, and did the four or five week, whatever it was, close observation course. And it was funny because. They were very much, in, and this was alluded to on one of your earlier pods, Cole, they were very much still in post-Northern Ireland phase. The Northern Ireland village, you know, the, the, the church had been given a minaret to make it look like a mosque, and um, a lot of the houses had been painted beige in, 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 in a very quick and, and, and very British Army-esque cheap way of making it uh, go from, um, you know, Belfast or, or Derry to, uh, to Basra. And uh, so, 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 so we were there, and it, it, was, it was very odd because they were still in their Northern Ireland mode, and, and I, I used to think that their their idea of OPs was almost like covert carpentry. They used to they used to go into bushes with 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 saws and 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 and, and decorators poles and and make these fantastic hides that would make Billoddy proud. We sort of looked at them and said, "What do you mean you're not digging? You, you, can't, you can't have an OP if you don't dig." Because um, we were all conditioned by that stage, we'd all come through patrol selection course. Uh, or, or like me, a DS on the patrol session course with with four seven three. So we were very conditioned to doing things the four seven three way, the special OP way, uh, and that led to quite a bit of tension. And I think that's quite a clash of cultures, really, because on the one hand you've got Northern Ireland where <coughs> you couldn't really dig in anyway. Um, there was no sort of NVG threat, night vision yeah. goggle threat, or night vision device threat. Whereas in the training that 473 was doing and training the HAC on was for like a conventional war fight. We had to get underground to survive artillery and small arms fire, cover from view and cover from fire, and also get out of the uh, night vision sort of spectrum. Yeah, and, and there, were, there, were, there were also other uh, subtle differences because they were very much into their overt covert surveillance, i.e. blending in with, you know, you know, not being behind enemy lines, but being amongst the SIP pop. Um, and there, and therefore blending in with you know the, the the normal troops for want of a better phrase, whereas we were very much used to 
you're you're forward of the uh, line of troops and you're on your own. So, you know, we wore no rank. We wore no badges. Um, you, you know, we didn't have berets with us. And it was, um, it, yeah, we, we sort of, we got used to each other and, 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 and we found a way. But um, in, in, instead of uh, one or two of the uh, of the more seasoned COTAT instructors, instead of referring to us as the, you know, the bloody stabs, the stupid TA bastards, um, referred to us as the, the freaking 473 wannabes. Yeah, you can't win in that sort of situation, can you? <laughs> which was, uh, yeah, which, 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 which amused me a bit. But anyway, we, we, we got through that. But it, it was funny how in a few short years that 473 influence had, had gone right through the, the, the patrol soldiers um, of, of the regiment. Uh, I think there's a good blend of skills to be had there and learning from both theatres, and Kev will know this from his time in Northern Ireland. It wasn't unusual if you're in an SF base, say a, a vehicle checkpoint in the middle of nowhere, that you'd be booted out a Sanger, one of the watchtowers. Yeah. For a few days, and uh, some some guys from the close observation team, so, yeah, or take maybe a, even yeah. you know fourteen in or whatever, I don't know. But they they come in, you'd be booted out, told to stay away from it, and they'd yeah. sit in there and they'd do an overt OP on a, on a task. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it, it, that was just a completely alien concept to us. We we, we were just used to being out on our own um, and only communicating with other people who are not in your patrol, you know, via radio, not normally underground or half underground. So it, it was, uh, yeah, it was very strange. Um, but anyway, you know, we got there and uh, a successful tour. And um, I think, um, as, as uh, JD said on a previous pod, you know, the HAC either on its own or with 473 has pretty much been involved in every every Telic and Herrick we've had um, so far. What I'll do is I'll give you um, a quick potted history um, of the Honourable Artillery Company. Uh, one thing I should tell tell uh, you and all the listeners, and you, you, well, you two will know, uh, the regiment is full of pedants who will no doubt pick me up on every single mistake I'm going to make. Um, so with that caveat, this is a very high-level view uh, of, of the regiment in the last few hundred years. So the, the HAC, the Honourable Artillery Company, was formed by Royal Charter in 1537 uh, by Henry VIII, thus making it the oldest regiment in the British Army. Some people think that's a bit odd, artillery in 1537. Back then, artillery didn't mean guns. It meant um, anyone who fought with a projectile, longbow, crossbow, etc., etc. It was known by various names, but by, by the end of the 17th century, the 1680s, the Honourable Artillery Company name had stuck. Hedging its bets, as always, we never like to be wrong, so fought on both sides of the Civil War, uh, 1642 <laughs> to 49. Now, this and this will no doubt upset some listeners, if, if you go on uh, Wikipedia, it will tell you that men from the HAC formed the Grenadier Guards in 1656 and the, and the Royal Marines in 1664. Um, now, oh. there will be guards. There's a lot of controversy being on this one, There, will, there will be I guardsmen thought... and, and, uh, and booties absolutely gnashing their teeth at that. We'll leave. Uh, w- w- when the answers come in, sorry, sorry, when the questions come in, mate, I'll refer them to you. <laughs> yeah, cheers. <laughs> Thanks very much. Uh, I think I'll, 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 I'll cut myself off from the world at that point. Um, so the HAC, uh, again, for some, some listeners may not know, is, is situated right on the outskirts of the city of London. It's actually in Islington, but it, it, it's right by the city. And it defended the city of London uh, during, during the Gordon riots of 1780. Uh, and then things were pretty quiet until First World War. Uh, the HAC deployed overseas during the Boer War, just before the First World War, I should say, as infantry, mounted infantry and field artillery. And those Boer War battles, a number of them, are on the HAC regimental colours. 
they're the first names, in fact, on the HSE Regimental Colours. It became part of the TA, the Territorial Army, in the 1907 Territorial and Reserve Forces Act, but the properties and privileges were protected by the 1908 HAC Act. So it's, uh, I don't know if it's the only army regiment that uh, is protected by an Act of Parliament. Uh, no doubt someone will have a view on that, uh, but I don't know any others. Um, so in World War One, there were three infantry battalions and seven artillery battalions. Uh, two VCs were one, uh, both at Gavrel, uh, and they hang in the in the medal room at the HAC. And in 1917, an officer training battalion was formed, uh, and then it went back to its um, sort of territorial role after the First World War. In World War Two, the infantry battalion became the 162 HAC Officer Cadet Training Unit uh, of the Reconnaissance Corps. So that's where the, the HA, that infantry battalion just turned into a, a, an extension of the other officer training uh, establishments at the time, things like Sandhurst and Woolwich, etc. On the artillery side, uh, 11, 12 and 13 HAC regiments RHA served in Europe and uh, in Africa. There also was a battery protecting um, various parts of uh, the City of London and on the home front. Post-war, it was set up into an infantry battalion. Uh, 1st Regiment HAC Royal Horse Artillery, which was self-propelled artillery. 2nd Regiment uh, Anti-Aircraft and a G-Locating Battery. Uh, And then there are various things through the 60s and 70s who can look up for themselves. The regiment took its its sort of more modern form in in, in 1985, uh, where 1, 2 and 3 Squadron were formed, along with HQ Squadron and a gun troop, which is how it would have looked when uh, you two fine gentlemen rocked up in the 90s. Uh, the gun troop went to liaison troop in 2005. Uh, so it was also, so the gun troop lost its role at, uh, in gunnery. Uh, but then in 2018, it came back as a battery in support of 7RHA. So all the, uh, the gun troop, which uh, again, I'm going to get crucified for this, but the gun troop, which was always the more sort of, uh, how can I say, it, 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 if you went to the right school, you went to the gun troop. It, oh, it was more the gin. Um, it, it went from that to being very warry. Uh, and they're now all uh, P Company qualified and para badge. So it's uh, that's gone full circle. Uh, in the current role, so, so when you guys were there and when I was instructing with you, one, two and three squadron were all patrol squadrons. And then there was an HQ squadron. A signal squadron was formed, I think, in 94, maybe 95. And then in its current role, that happened in, I think it was, again, 2018, um, there's the one squadron, which is the special OP squadron, same as same role as 473 battery. And then two and three squadron are in the light ISR role. And that's how it stands today. ISR, Steve? Uh, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance. Sorry, I, I forget with the abbreviation. And uh, how many patrols are in one squadron, Steve? Their official manning is 12, but there'll be anywhere between six and eight. I think it's quite interesting as well that all that history there because the HSC is a piece of real estate in the centre of London's impressive. It's on the city road and when I first got posted down there, I got the tube and I went down there and you walk along the city road and it's quite easy to spot because a button onto the city road is this ancient looking sandstone type. You can tell it's a barracks of some sort, essentially, but it's quite, it's quite old looking. But what it doesn't, what you don't see from the city road is when you go through the main gates uh, and you walk into that area of the estate, it's absolutely massive. It's got a cricket pitch, probably probably enough for th- three rugby pitches on there, Steve. Do you reckon? Well, yeah, well, officially, there's a, there's a rugby pitch, a football pitch, but we don't like to talk about that, and a hockey pitch. Uh, with a cricket square in the middle. Yeah, and a massive underground car park for all the vehicles because you don't want them cluttering up the place well, and making it look so untidy. That's a, that's a that's a 
uh, a bit of an anachronism, the underground car park, because I, I, I joined shortly after, well, I joined at the end of the Cold War, right? So, uh, again, referencing your earlier podcasts, the regiment uh, had Mexis, you know, they dug in Mexis. That had gone by the time I got there. The first time I saw a Mexi was at the battery lines up at Catrick in the 473 lines um, when you had it in that interest room. But when uh, the, the Cold War was on, um, the regiment had a lot of kit in Germany ready to go uh, if the balloon went up. Um, and, and that needed to go somewhere when the first strategic revenge, uh, defense review hit after, uh, after you know, fall of the Berlin Wall and collapse of the Soviet Empire, etc. Um, and they had to find somewhere to put all this gear. So <clears throat> the obvious thing to do was to excavate a massive underground car park underneath those pitches. Now, the, 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 the funny thing about that is that you will know, Cole, and I think you probably, I don't know if you did or Kev, a lot of the uh, permanent staff instructors live in the flats, uh, in, the, in the converted houses at the back of, those, of, of that rugby hockey pitch, uh, which is on Bunhill Row, uh, which is a bastardisation of Bonehill Row, because that was a plague, plague burial pit where the HAC is. So there was some concern by the environmental health enthusiasts that when they excavated the underground car park, they were going to dig up plague. So uh, <laughs> every so many metres or something, they used to send someone down to with a couple of test tubes and do a bit of testing, bizarrely enough. I think they did, they did dig up a few bones, funnily enough, but no plague. Or, or, or maybe they did. Maybe that would explain a lot. <laughs> yeah, some of the strange traditions of the HAC, <laughs> mate. <laughs> so, yeah, but if ever anybody goes past it, it's, it's, it's quite a unique place. It is really, um, there's a lot of money there, that vast amount of empty land smack bang the city of London. I would imagine, so, sorry, Steve, I'll just say, I'd imagine from a, from a yeah. real estate perspective, it's probably the most expensive rugby pitch in the world. <laughs> yeah, good point. I, 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 I'm just assuming that. I don't know for sure, but I would imagine it probably is. Yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. So moving on then, Steve, we've talked a bit about the training and all the rest of it. So how's the current reserve course structured and, and what are the phases? So, um, again, uh, I mentioned him earlier on, but JD uh, went into this in a little bit of detail on uh, on, on the couple of podcasts ago when he was talking about his time in the HAC. So now um, the HAC sort of semi-run their phase one training. So let, let, I'll explain back in the day when we were, we were doing it, it was a six-month recruit course. So from, from raw, you know, you attestation, get your kit and in you come. It was six weekends plus a nine-day uh, final exercise over six months. And then you went on to phase two, which was patrol selection course for those who wanted to do that, um, which was, again, six weekends uh, and a nine-day, eight or nine-day uh, final FTX, final test exercise. And for those that didn't want to do that, the the, the, uh, the patrolling, uh, they could either go to the, the gun troop or signals and do a signals course, patrol, sig- um, uh, patrol signals uh, or med or whatever. Now, what they do now is they run their internal phase one course, where you have your weekends and one night a week learning basic, you know, basic infantry skills. But then you go away on a two-week final test exercise where you will be with other uh, phase one troops. So it's sort of a half in-house, half out of house. And then phase two is 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 a signals course with then those who want to join those that want to join the, the OP squadron, one squadron, then doing the OP course or the patrols course as, as almost like a phase three type type thing. Uh, and to my knowledge, uh, that is still done uh, in conjunction with uh, 473, at least um, part of the final test exercises. 
That's a long. That's a long eighteen months. Well, it is, and and, and this is what reserve forces. You know, anyone listening to this who's, who's either in or has been in or any experience of reserve forces. The problem is, is you only have a finite amount of time. If you've got a civvy job, then you might only have two weeks a year that you can give up for exercises. Outside, you know, when when I was on the patrol selection course, either as chief instructor or as the OC, I I, I did. 18 weekends a year, so one night a week, 18 weekends a year, and then a, probably about two and a half, maybe three weeks of exercise. And 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 my the company I work for, I work for a bank, you know, they gave me an extra week, um, but the rest had to come out of my, you know, my holiday, my four or five-week holiday allowance. And I don't think people appreciate that sort of dedication, and I, I certainly didn't until I went down there as a PSI. And, you know, a guy could leave his house if, on a Friday morning, going to work, and he won't see his family again till late on the, the Sunday there, or early on the Sunday. There were a couple of times um, where you know my my, my, my two older boys are, are twenty and twenty two now, so they were they were young children when I was uh, instructing on the selection course, and, and there were because I, I'm at my desk by half seven in the morning, and I wouldn't be home till sometimes seven eight o'clock at night. Uh, there were a couple of two week periods where I didn't see him for two weeks. Because that middle weekend, I went to work on a Friday morning and I came home on Sunday night, having having been to you know Brecon or Catrick or somewhere. And, and I think the other thing you've got to be clever when you're a PSI with with reserve forces because you've got to your end products the same, but you've got to treat them. I think in some respects, and Kev might disagree with me here, but slightly differently in that you've got to make give it a bit of an element of fun because if you don't and there's not a lot of fun to be had at three o'clock in the morning the breaking beacons but you know you've got to you've got to keep that interest going because if you don't and people lose interest you'll end up losing somebody i just wonder what your take on that is kev yeah i think there's a balance to be sought but i yeah. also felt that the people that want to be in the reserve forces <clears throat> and want to give up this time they want to be pushed they want to be stretched they don't want it so easy that they go back on a monday morning and say well, I just sat in the field all day and I didn't do anything. They want to tell the story that they, you know, they they did a ten mile or they did a river crossing or something else. So I feel that, that you, and that's what you, that's what I meant by fun. Yeah. I don't I don't mean yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. For me, a weekend giving it up, I'm, I'm not sure I want to do that. But yeah, it, it works. It's finding that balance, and I think it's not for everybody either. I think reserve soldiering is not for everybody, and and, and certainly. Going through a selection course well, for a, everybody. Either. There, there, there's a balance to be had because what, what you've got to remember is, you, you know, if, if someone wants to leave reserve forces, then they 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 hand their kit back and they stop turning up. You know, they're, they're not, they're, you, you can't force them to turn up for it. Well, you've got to see a year out or whatever. That, that you know, they can literally vote with their feet. So that can be a challenge. And the but, but having said that, I always took the view, and I think the good the good people do that. You volunteer once. You volunteer when you walk through the gate. After that, everything's compulsory, right? So, 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 so you you volunteer fundamentally yeah. to be there, and once you're there, you're there, and and, and you I do think, you do you know you do as you're told. I think for me, I always had the back of my mind is that you've always got to remember that you're trying to get to an end product that potentially could go on operations. So you've got to try and get as much stuff into that person as possible <clears> in that short period. And if you don't stay on course, don't stay on track, and you drift off, and you try and make it a bit more. Uh, it's, it's described to me sometimes. Oh, we need you know. It, it has to be sometimes a bit more less serious. It, that's fine until the day you go and go on operations and you realise actually, I wish I'd done more stuff because we always felt like you always, even the regulars, you always feel like you're underprepared. You want to do more stuff before you go. And when you get out on the operation, you always feel like there's bloody hell. I wish I'd done more X, Y, and Z. 
Well, I think for reserve forces, harder. I think you, you're right, but but to pick up on something Colin said, um, you know, training for it to be enjoyable, it can be challenging. I mean, I, I don't know anyone who's ever had a gun put to their head and been made to run a marathon. You know, but, but pe- people do right, and and they look a right state at the end of it. But but the pleasure comes from the achievement. And I used to say, you know, in my little, my little speech as OCPSC at the Pass Out Parade, I used to say, go as far as you can within operational security. You know, go tell people in the office, tell your family what you've done. Tell them the hardship uh, and, and the physic- how physically hard this is, how mentally hard this is. Tell them what you've done. And when they scratch their head and look at you and say, well, why'd you do it? You look them back and say, Cause, because you can't. And, 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 and that's, that's, you know, that's the reward, right? And, and and the other thing I think with the reserve soldiering is hard is you haven't got time to, 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 to train people completely. You haven't got time to get people fit. People have to get fit in their own time. You've got time to test them. So I used to say this to the guys, we will test you, but you need to learn in your own time and you need to get fit in your own time. That's a great point, actually. And, and there's more hours of personal time uh, being eroded through that dedication. Yeah, so you've got to be, you know, out running with, with your, you know, every, the w- weekends that you're not on an army exercise, you're out running with your Bergen on and, you know, I don't know, di- you know, in the gym or wh- whatever you're doing. But it, it's interesting, when, when I first joined the regiment, and, and, and again, this is my own personal view, I'm sure many, many people in the regiment will disagree with me, but in the early 90s when I joined, it felt a bit like a private army cult. It felt to me like there wasn't much interaction with the rest of the army, and, and there were too many people who enjoyed saying oh, no, we, we, we do things differently here. I agree with that. I I, th- I think when I first turned up there and sort of as an outsider looking in, I wouldn't say so much like a private army, but and people cut the legs off me for saying this, but I'd say it was more of like a private club and there was a tendency for some to pick the good bits and bend, bend the bits that they didn't want. And then I think from the sort of the mid-90s onwards, the HAC realised it had to carve a new role for itself and to do that, the mindset had to change. Do you think I'm being a bit harsh there, Steve, or that's a fair comment? I think you're absolutely spot on. There are three things that, that, that change the HAC for the better. Strategic defence reviews. You know, as, as, as Kev often says and, and used to say, the HAC doesn't have to worry about being disbanded, you know, because it's got this fabulous barracks in the middle of London and, you know, it, it wines and dines generals and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's got a lot of important contacts yeah, and far-reaching yeah, places. It, it's probably it? the best networked regiment in the army, but it could always get re-rolled. So, so if you want to protect your useful uh, role, then you know you, you need to you need to get serious. So, I think strategic defence reviews, which which started chopping the army severely, made the HAC take a look at itself. I, and again, I think the closer relationship with four seven three was the second fundamental thing. You know, get, getting getting uh, closer in training and operations and and staff like yourselves. Uh, and lastly, um, it's a matter of timing operations. So um, since 1995, over 300 HAC personnel have served on operations. And that will go through, you know, the Bosnian wars of the mid-90s, um, Operation Agricola in 99, uh, through uh, Telic uh, and into Herrick. Um, so I think, and we know, shouldn't forget, and we shouldn't forget, mate, that uh, an HAC soldier paid the ultimate sacrifice on Op Herrick, serving alongside Force Seven Free Battery Trooper Jack Sapper. Well, you know, when when I first joined the regiment, and you guys will know, halfway up the fabulous main staircase is the is the uh, is the Book of Remembrance, um, and and if you're in uniform as you pass that, you salute. Uh, you eyes left or eyes right, and you salute. And there are two names on the uh, uh, you know either side of that now. Two extra names. There's uh, Trooper Jack Sadler who sadly died in 2007 whilst on operations with 473. 
Um, and then another chap who went through PSC whilst I was instructing, uh, a guy called Ed Drummond Baxter, a lieutenant, who, who 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 died in Afghanistan serving with the Gurkhas, but but nevertheless went, you know, was was badged HAC before he went to Sandhurst and joined the regular army. So that you know, that, that's a dose of reality right there. Yeah, it's not camping with guns. Yeah. It's not camping with guns anymore. It's it's real. And did a very real job. So just go, going back to the selection course that so we started off this thread of conversation with Steve. In your days, so what were the, the average number of recruits that you started off with on a, on a selection course, the actual sort of course selection? What numbers did you end up with on average? Oh, no, I mean, my, my own uh, course was, was, was probably box standard average. We, start, we, we started actually phase one with 72. And then after six months, 32 of us passed out as HAC troopers. And then six months later, 10 of those passed the selection course. Uh, and whilst I was either instructor or uh, OC of the selection course, the largest pass out we had was 19. But that was a double course because of foot and mouth. Um, that was me and Kev, I think, um, because we missed a course because yep. of foot and mouth. And, 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 right. and the smallest was four. And, you know, when I was first on it, interestingly enough, uh, and, and just talking to my colleagues who were instructing on the course uh, initially when I was in the squadrons, there would be these debates, you know, is this guy good enough? Or, you know, what do we think of this chap? And, oh, well, he might be okay. But as soon as Telek and Herrick came along, that changed. Because when, when I was OCPSC, every single one of my staff had served on a Telek or a Herrick. So you you were passing people off to go to places where people were getting shot and blown up. And, and they had to be good enough. And, and they were going to be working with the regular army. That That was always my massive motivation. I was always terrified of the HAC somehow letting down uh, the regular army. That could never happen. So that, that was always my big motivation when training people. And, and we talked a bit a little bit PT and guys having to train themselves. So Scott, sorry, not Scott, JD covered, I think, in the last couple of pods ago about the, the, you know, the HAC is more aligned with 473 now and do all the sort of the route marches. In fact, it wasn't. Who was it described all the route marches in that, Kev? It was Danny, wasn't it? Danny described all the route marches. Yeah, that's right. But, but in, your, in your day... Steve, just give an idea to the listeners of what the sort of those endurance marches and breaking that you did as, as a, as a, as yeah, a reserve yeah, so, soldier. Um, to bring the HAC, the, the, the fit, not just the, the, the comms and, and, and the uh, standard operating procedures, the SOPs, into line with 473, but also to bring the sort of the fitness and the arduous side of it into line with 473. Um, I know this is going to swell his head, but a lot of the credit has to go to the man uh, on the podcast, Kev O'Keefe, because... You can say that all again if you want to. <laughs> because, um, you know, it was an arduous course, don't get me wrong. You know, six weekends and during during those weekends there would be, you know, you, you, know, you work a week, you might have had the, the most bastard of a week, uh, you know, you're absolutely shattered. And then on Friday night you get on a, a Ford Turner or a coach and you go somewhere and you get off and that's it. You're into a night navigational exercise with, you know, whatever – whatever currency you use, 50 kilos or over 100 pounds on your back, you know, rifle, blah, 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 and off you go. And and until Sunday afternoon, you might only get about four or five hours sleep. And, and on that Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, there could be, you know, a 10-mile march involved or, or you're at one part of a training area and, and the pickup is at another part. There is no option but to, uh, to, to get on there. So it's always very tough. And then the big test march, which you had to pass to be allowed to go on the – Final test exercise was 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 the Brecon March, which uh, essentially was fifty five kilometres over the Brecon Beacons in thirteen and a half no in fifteen hours. 
in 15 hours. Um, there could be some adjustments for weather, but the, but that was roughly it. And, and then the final test exercise, Cole, was very much um, a two-phase bit, an OP phase and then an E&E phase with a capture at the end and then what we called at the time resistance to, to interrogation training. And it was very much, although we'd moved on from Mexis, it was still very much in that mould of we're, we're, you know, we're in Eastern Europe or we're in Western Europe and the Russians have rolled over us. We, we, we've sent some messages. The artillery have bombed the buggery out of it. And now we've got to get up and leg it. And it was very much, the training was still very much geared to that. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And But but the world had changed. Uh, and 473 had seen that. And then Kev Kev made us, made, made us change. And he brought in things like... We did it. We did an eight miler, but he brought in the ten miler, which which came straight from four seven three. Um, and Kev, a lot of the a lot of the soldiers I spoke to, a lot of the the, the, the students said they found the ten miler more arduous than the Brecon March. Because remember, we did it at the end of the weekend. We did it at Otterburn because you started taking us to Catrick and Otterburn. <laughs> it was and, and, well, and people, people well. that say you know the Brecon Beacons is 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 arduous and all the rest of it. Well, I, I will pay for them to have a weekend in Otterburn. Well, I chose the routes. I made sure it was a lot of cross graining with your with your pack on your back. You had to do your OPs, site your first OP, then you're going to move to another OP. You're going to cross grain again. The idea was to to push those those soldiers as hard as we could. But you brought up a good point, Kevin, an earlier podcast. That ten miler decided the base fitness and whether people had that base fitness in order to proceed on to the next part of the course. And if they couldn't pass that 10 miler, they didn't have the motivation or the fitness no. to do that. Well, you can't be a specialist soldier if you can't achieve something a little bit more than what was the standard training. And that's what we were pushing for. We wanted them to be a little bit fitter, a little bit faster. Yeah, I mean- Not supermen, but you know, just that next level. Yeah, myself, myself, Kev, uh, the course sergeant, the OC of the selection course, we all sat down and, and it, it was, we tried to, not, I'm not saying it wasn't like this before, but it, but but we tried to improve it so that each weekend it got incrementally harder. And then, and then really, you, you know, you, you, you never bin anyone, you never fail anyone. It's all self-selection. It's all, it's all VW, voluntary withdrawal. Absolutely. And ultimately, yes, we go back to that phrase that Kevin and I have used throughout this podcast series. It's the three skills that you need to have a patrol soldier, shoot, move, and communicate. Yep. Yeah. Shoot in a variety of conditions with a variety of weapon systems. Yeah. Move yeah. on foot and in vehicle and communicate from hand signals to, to technical yeah. high-speed communications. Devices. I mean, don't need anything else. But- that's yeah. that's another thing which again to 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 you know I'm an HAC man and you're a couple of four seven threeers, but to emphasise the the benefits of the of, of the cross training, I, I think I can mention his name because he's been on a on a, on a podcast 
Um, the first person I ever met from 473, I think before even you, Cole, was Lee Chapman. And I met him in the mid-90s. And uh, I think I'd just been made a patrol commander. He was a patrol commander, and, he, and, and there was a 473 patrol in one of our exercises. Um, the one thing I remember learning from him was patrol signaling, comms. Because what the 473 boys would do was would try and get through, and if you couldn't get through on the um, on the radio, instead of you know giving up and having a sad on, uh, they'd keep trying. And then, but what would happen is they wouldn't stop collecting data. They wouldn't stop collecting intelligence, so that the messages built up and built up. And as soon as there was a window, there would be a flood of messages coming through from them. So yeah. you know, they, nothing was wasted, and it was little things like that that I thought, yeah, those guys are, they're much better at this than we are. I always remember being told you don't get communications; you fight for communications. Yeah. You know, and you didn't get your head down until you had established comms, and uh, your patrol's reputation stood or fell on your ability to get through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was well. There was no point being there if you couldn't tell somebody what you could see. Yeah. But it didn't matter how good your OP was, how good soldiering you were, how camouflaged you were. If you couldn't send that one message, what was the point? But um, on, on the training front, though, Cole, I mean, I've, all I've spoken about so far is, you know, the benefits of the the, 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 the cross-training between the two units, etc. But there was there was some resistance and there was a lot of inertia. And that wasn't because of a, any uh, negative view of 473. But as you can imagine, from a, a regiment in, you know, one of the oldest cities in the world, you know, in the oldest regiment in the British Army, it loves tradition and it loves a certain way of doing things. And the patrol selection course up until then had been, you know, Brecon based. And the final test exercise was in the East Nor area. Mm. And uh, Kev said, right, we're going to move this to Otterburn. And, you know, pe- people spat their pipes out and monocles fell on the floor. And and, th- and there was a bit of resistance. Uh, but change, I think... In fairness to the HAC, you had your own identity and you had it for a long time and no one had tried to change things that dramatically and probably, you know, I was moving it from where some of the seniors had all been through so it was their, it was their history and I was, you know, I was moving it and I was going to change their... That, that, that's a great point, Kev, because yeah. in some respects you turn up, you're a bit of an interloper. Yeah. I'm there um, for two years. Yeah. You're not part of the regiment. You're attached to the regiment for two years. And you'll be gone. They've been there for 15, 20 years. And their stories, their selection, their training, it's all been very different. So you saying, oh, we're going to do this, and we're going to bring in a 10-miler, and we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Why? I didn't have to do it. And it, and it became it a little bit resistance to change, but also I was changing their their version of the history. And, and some of them would have thought perhaps we were criticising, but we weren't. We're just moving forward because the world had changed and the operations had changed. And, you know, just as 473, our selection course had changed many times from the stay-behind role through to Gulf War, through to post-Gulf War, we'd be able to fight for our role and redevelop our, uh, our way of operating. And that's all we would all we would bring in was what we'd gone through. Yeah, I mean, it's it, a lot of those changes were a lot more realistic, though, Kev, weren't they? So when I did the patrol selection course and we we, we did the OP phase, we were observing uh, a target area, uh, you know, let's say it's a, I don't know a junction, a crossroads, and and uh, a Land Rover would go along and it would have a number on the top, you know, twenty eight, and you'd look in your book and twenty eight would be a T eighty, you know, main battle tank. So you'd say, right, that's a T eighty, and then at night it would have flashing lights on. You know what, what? What does two orange flashing lights mean, followed by a red one? Oh, that means it's uh, it's towed artillery. You know, and that's and that's the message you'd send back. 
when Kev came, he managed to get hold of the uh, those the, the, the blow up, the inflatable targets. So they would be there would be a half battery of, of of guns in a wood on the edge of a wood, and that's a lot easier to miss than than a Land Rover with a flashing light. And, it, and you know, and it, it just made it a lot more realistic. And, and that's all I was trying to do because I, I've I've been in that position, and so is Colin, where we've watched the Land Rover go past with a number on the side, and you're looking at it thinking, yeah, number six, yeah. And we've done many exercises like that in international exercises and all the rest of it, exactly the same way. And what I wanted was you turned up and you told people there's going to be a gun position somewhere. No one believes you at the briefings. They're going, yeah, yeah, there'll be a gun position. And when they got there, there was a gun position with someone operating it. But that perfectly illustrates the fun point I was going to earlier on. I'm not talking about party hats and party poppers. It's like making an exercise realistic. And by making it realistic, it becomes fun. Yeah, because then that, it, it, and it brings in everything you've been taught. Because like you say, there's no point in seeing it and recognising it if you can't communicate back. That's what you've seen. You had to be proficient at what, you know, what we called in my day FER, foreign equipment recognition, which you know we did the same syllabus as, 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 as the battery. So you had to recognise what, you know, what bit of ex-Soviet kit that was um, or, or, or NATO kit or whatever. Um, and, and, and so it made it, it was a better scenario and therefore you had more achievements. It was more realistic. I mean, I, uh, there must be some people in the regiment who think that every time I was connected with PSC or, or the patrol course, there were, there were changes because there was, there was the change to the, to the Otterburn area and, this, and this, that sort of changed the structure of the course. And then a bit later on when I was OC and we had a different PSI from 473 battery, who, who, again, a, a, another tremendous bloke who went over and above, um, for, you know, considering I'm only here for a couple of years sort of thing, as Kev said, just went over and above uh, and, and really cared for the training like it was his regiment and his legacy. And we, we changed the, 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 the famous Brecon March, that 55K march, because we found that people were, were able to get themselves up for that march, pass it, and then just collapse in a heap at the end. And, and, and soldiering's not like that. It, it, it's about getting a few hours kit, add adminning yourself, sorting your feet out, and then doing it again. Um, so we split it in two, into a night march and a day march. So overall, it was slightly longer, but each chunk was was, was smaller than the, the, the big march. And that caused a lot of gnashing of teeth. But but that sort of, you know, send your message and head for Switzerland over the hills, th- those days were over. So, so so why did we still do that big Brecon march, in, in, you know, in one go? Uh, you know, things weren't done just to shake it up. It was done for, 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 for the purposes of realistic training. Yeah, you're refocusing on, on on the current role, not just hanging yeah, on to the exactly. past. And, and I think it took an external, like a four seven three guy, to, to to force us to do that. You know, you you can't do that from within. Sometimes you you need an external force to do that. Moving gently on, um, General Stone, the founder of the Special Observer role, covers some of the characteristics in the first episode with, with me and Carl, um, saying that you know soldiers required the dedication, determination, self belief the ability to work in a small team and self-discipline. Looking at what you completed uh, on the HAC selection and on the training as well, do you think that your selection course and current courses are still seeking the same sort of soldier? And what is the additional attributes required of a reservist to do this? To, to a large extent, yes, I agree that you're still looking for those same attributes because that's, that's the basic building blocks of, uh, of, of an efficient soldier, someone who is physically robust, someone who is, well, certainly of, a, of an OP soldier, someone who is physically robust, someone who is mentally robust, and someone who is relatively intelligent. I, I think if anything's changed, it's, it, you know, the kit has become more sophisticated uh, and maybe there's a, a, a level of 
technical know-how which is required now that wasn't then but then having said that people today you know i'm, I'm you know we're, we're 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 three old guys sitting around talking about you know what it was like in our day two old right guys. there uh, and, and me <laughs> they're, um, you know they're, they're, they're sort of more au fait with 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 technology than, than, than maybe we were so so maybe it's not such a stretch for them but ultimately you do need people who can operate in a team and on their own and be relatively self-sufficient that will never change and i think i just want to pick up on a point you made there steve you know you said patrol soldiers in 473 and hsc they need to be intelligent and need to be fit now it's quite easy to get a fit soldier it's quite easy to get an intelligent soldier but to get a fit and intelligent soldier can be challenging at times and again there'll be people out there going i'll do one whatever but i do think that combination of fitness and intelligence can be quite elusive at times do you think that's a fair comment oh absolutely um and 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 let's uh mention one other thing and that is that intelligence and common sense are not necessarily good bedfellows (laughs) one doesn't necessarily lead to the other in fact often the opposite is true um two 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 quick um stories I, i remember we had a lecture from a couple of guys from uh, Pathfinders, a couple of paras one evening, and I was sort of looking after them and was told to take them across to the bar afterwards and uh, look after them. And as we were walking across to the bar, you know, and, and, and some listeners may not know that, like a lot of small units, the HAC is very much a first-name term sort of unit. We have one mess. There's no officers and ORs. It's all one bar. Um, you know, when, 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 there are, when we're on parade and there are seniors around, we know how to play the game. But um, I remember one, one guy turned to his mate and said, you know, Better put your berry on, Dave, because the way they talk around here, you never know whether one of these bastards is a corporal or a brigadier. <laughs> um, so, so that so that that was often a challenge in the HEC. And 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 then back to that time on on the um, on the Kotak course, I was sitting there when when I did the controllers course. We were actually with some grenadiers who were going out to Bosnia, and I was sitting in the uh, control room, and a, a grenadier patrol turned up, and their controller said to him, "Right, chaps, I want you tomorrow morning at this time in this place." with this kit and they all went done and buggered off. And, and he'd been telling me earlier on that evening how he envied me because HAC soldiers tended to be more intelligent. And an HAC patrol turned up and I said to them, right, lads, well done. You need to be at this place at this time with this kit. And they said, sir. And then one of them stopped and said, can I just ask, wouldn't it be better if we... <laughs> and then I turned to the uh, grenadier and said, see what I mean? This is why I have to do it. So it's 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 a blessing and a curse. Yeah, and I, and the way you're laughing, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, I know. I've I've been there, but but to be fair, you get the same sort of thing in four seven three because you you're not in four seven three and like the HEC, you're not going to guys that are unquestioning of tasks, orders, and, and the rest of it. You know, you will if if you give a dodgy set of orders, you will be called out for it. Well, I remember there was a, there was a guy you mentioned earlier on. It was a peer cycle, Chris. Um, and he talked to he, he 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 talked about this, and he said, "I'll listen to everyone's opinion, but there's only one person making the decision." Yeah, uh, and I thought that that hit that was spot on. That hit the nail on the head. You can all have your say, and then, but, and, yeah. and then a patrol. It's a patrol command. Yeah, yeah. The, the the responsibility and the accountability lies with me. So during the during the Cold War, then Steve, uh, the Cold War era. I mean, four seven three from the troops to seven three to four seven three. We did a huge amount of continuity training, the LERPS courses and some of the other courses, um, the survival courses that we had to do. You talked briefly about, obviously, you did did a LERP course as well. But what was the requirement for the reserve special observers for their continuation training, their continuation courses? Well, 
everyone that passed patrol selection course then went on that you know you then went into a, a squadron and normally you know you were given a radio <laughs> you were like right you're you're the newest member you have the heaviest bit of kit there you go there's a you know it was the the, the clansman uh prc319 there's that there's a bunch of batteries you're carrying that you've just done the course so you should be good at signals get on with it but there was then there was a patrol signal of course which everyone uh had to go through and then after that there were other courses offered but it wasn't necessarily structured that you did this in year one this in year two this in year three it was if you could do the course if you had the time get on and do it so there was a patrol medics course which i never did but i understand was excellent and and, and used to you know you 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 can't do this sort of thing these days because health and safety ruins everything doesn't it but they used to do an attachment at, at uh, london hospital at whitechapel in, in in the a&e um and if you want to know how to sew people up whitechapel on a saturday night is not a bad place to be um so 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 you got some proper first-hand experience uh, and, and then, you know, if, if any of the guys were, you know, because, again, listeners may not know, because of the catchment area, because the HAC is in the city or on the edge of the city, a lot of its members are, are you know, have professional jobs, you know, bankers and lawyers and, you know, uh, you know accountants and, 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 and surveyors and all the rest of it. But if any, if ever anyone was uh, between jobs or, as we used to call it, on the dole patrol, you know, you'd walk in and you'd say, you're looking a bit glum. What, what's wrong? Oh, I've just been made redundant. Great. Get on this course. And you'd, you'd be sent off on as many courses. You didn't have time to interview for a new job because you were too busy running around a jungle or, or, or doing some advanced FER course or something. Um, Go on. But what's been, what's, so what's been, what are the courses today then? Is, is that changed or and it's more structured? Well, it, it, you know, it, it it started to change when when you were uh, at the HAC, and then certainly uh, throughout the next the, the next sort of ten years, um, you know, everyone had to do signals. They they, they brought in OPAC because you know again that, that that's your bread and butter. So whilst a lot of us did OPAC, um, that became compulsory. Um, you had to drive. Yeah, because you. Sorry, stay. Just jump in for listeners that might not know. OPAC is observation <laughs> force assistant, and that's the ability to call in fires, uh, like artillery. Yeah, sorry. So that's your that, that's your that's your basic artillery course, isn't it? That, that, that's that's yeah. your stepping stone. Um, so that became um, something that you had to get under your belt. Uh, and as I say, you know, you had you had to be able to drive, right? You, you're no use if you can't get behind the wheel of a, a Land Rover in an ambush situation, or or, or you know whatever it be. Uh, and get yourself out of there. So, so, so it's a lot more. It started with I can't remember what it was. Was it called Crewman Two Thousand or something, Kev? Yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. That's one of the things that I had to. Work yeah, it, on. St- it started with it your- started with that uh, back in the nineties, and then and then it got more sort of formalised. Um, so, so I suppose look today, there's probably less scope to do some interesting things, but soldiering in the Telic and Herrick era has become a lot more serious reserve forces and therefore you have to get these basic courses done well it's great to see the evolution of the hsc over the years when i first turned up there as a, a sergeant in 1995 so 26 years ago and even from then to now you can see the difference it's a lot more operationally focused it's certainly supporting 473 battery on operations and i think that's the, that's the way it should be yeah and i think as as some of the people have gone through you know as young troopers they're now the senior um, staff in the HAC. You, you're always going to have a more of an operational focus than it was perhaps before because everyone's been on operational tours or a majority of them have. And so they understand the importance of good training, good preparation. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'd echo that because, you know, you, you, your life may depend on 
that bloke over there. So you, you got to, you know, it's not just enough to know that you can do it. You've got to know that they can do it as well. And uh, yeah, I, I just think it's, it, it's, it's a more professional organization than I'm not, not to say it wasn't before, but I think it's more professional now than, than, than it was more focused. Different focus. Yeah. Total different focus yeah. from, from the, I think I, I'm, we can reflect that from the cold war days when that came away, we had to refocus on a different type of um, operation, different type of battle, and operate much differently to you know the old stay behind days. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, as usual, we'll finish off with Desert Island Dits, <laughs> which is the guest picks a favourite military book, a film, and a luxury item. So, Steve, what are your choices for this episode? So, um, I did send you in advance my choices, but I'm going to change one of those. So, I'll. St- well, controversial guests don't get to do that normally. I hope it's a good. Yeah, one. I am. So um, I'll start with. I'll keep. The, I'll start with book. So I'll keep the same book. So I, I looked at the. I looked at the bookshelf, and at some of the Second World War stuff on SOE, etc., which is which is all good stuff. But actually, you'll think this is boring. The book I'd choose is the Falklands War by the Sunday Times Insight Team. Your double podcast on on the Falklands was absolutely superb. I, I, I love that. Uh, it, it was Jimmy, was it? The guy that was- yeah, Jimmy, he was an outstanding guest and probably one of the best first-person accounts I've heard of. Uh, the because Falklands. there was no there was no bravado, there was no gung-ho, but there was telling it how it is. Uh, I just thought he, he absolutely got that balance right. Um, the Falklands War was my first experience of uh, anything Army. I don't come from a military family other than wartime service. Um, I was 11 um, when the Falklands War broke out and I used to have... Uh, two pictures on my bedroom wall. One was Samantha Fox, and uh, this is when I was a teenager, not now, Kev, obvious. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, and the other one was a picture of uh, one of the aircraft carriers sailing down the Solent towards the um, towards the Falklands uh, at the task force with the, with the words above it, "The Empire Strikes Back," and that, and that really was uh, quite evocative for me. The Falklands War. Now, the, the, the book by the Sunday Times Insight team uh, is very factual. Um, it, it's not firsthand, you know, you've got soldiers, etc., giving their stories, but it goes behind the scenes. And there are a lot of uh, interesting stories in there around what uh, the, the political climate at the time, how much help we actually got from the EU uh, and the Americans, etc., etc. So that would be my book. It's the, it's the best one volume work on the Falklands. And, and interestingly, as we've left Afghanistan in the last couple of weeks, which is essentially a defeat, it could be argued that the Falklands War, though not declared a war, was the last successful conflict fought by a Western army. Yeah, very much so. And, and you know, a war, you know, no, <laughs> we're showing our age now, you know, no drones or anything like that, you know, proper, proper hand-to-hand fighting, closing with the enemy. Uh, we, yeah. we, it's interesting you say that, Steve, because Kevin and I talked about that with Jimmy, and we said it was a Second World War. It, 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 you could have lifted that scenario and it had been Second World War. Yeah, no, no, no body armor, nothing. Yeah, I mean, you know, slightly better, slightly better guns on the ships, you know, SLRs and 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 and, and jets overhead. Other than that, it could have been 1945. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And it was th- fought in three dimensions, three battles. You know, it, it, it was won the air, won the ground, and war at sea. Yeah. Never happened again. It was also, everyone forgets as well, it was probably the last war that we've been involved in. We, we weren't part of a coalition. That was our war. Yeah, that's a great point, Re- actually. British only. There was no, we're part of a wider coalition, we're part of NATO, whatever. It was a solely 
you know, British event. And I'm, pre- I'm prepared to be corrected on this, Kev, but I do believe it's the furthest a country has fought a war from its mainland and won. That's an interesting one. Yeah, I, I, would, know. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think know. I'm right in saying that, but no doubt someone yeah. will correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that's correct. So that's uh, there, there's the book. Um, on, on the film, and this is the one I'm going to change, Cole, um, because I watched this film again the other day, purely because I came across it. It's a 2014 film which depicts an event that happened in 2009 in Helmand, and it's a film called Kajaki, and it tells the story of the Kajaki Dam incident. Um, and uh, it was released in 2014, and it was on iPlayer, I think, a year or two ago, um, and you can still get it on iPlayer now. And uh, have, you, have you guys seen it? I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I've yeah. seen it. And, and, uh, a, I, I, the reason why I picked that is because and there, there's no direct enemy in that film, and it's not particularly gung, gung-ho, but for me, the situation that was faced by those guys, many of them young guys, and the decision-making that they had to make under those incredible conditions where people are stepping left and right and IEDs are going off. Do you want to just, for people who might not be aware of the incident, just give a quick scenario or discussion there, mate, about so, yes, what the guys it's, have. It's, it's on yeah. one of the Herricks. It's Helmand Province, and these guys are, uh, are para-reg. And um, they go out on a foot patrol down to a, a, a dried-up, uh, riverbed, which is dried up because of a big dam called the Kajaki Dam. And unbeknownst to them, what has happened is rains over the years uh, have, have, have moved Soviet mines from the, uh, from the uh, 80s, from the 79 to 89 conflict, whenever the, the Soviets were there, have swept these mines into the bottom of this uh, dried up riverbed. And they go patrolling through it. And, and one guy steps on an IED um, and loses a leg and then someone goes to help him. And I think in the end, about, about four or five of these end up going off. Um, and it, sh- you know, it shows some modern soldiering guys on their belt buckles with bayonets pushing at the ground around them, uh, sort of scrabbling among the dust, trying to find evidence of IEDs around them. Um, at one point, a Chinook comes in to try and rescue them and the downdraft sets off another one. Uh, and it's a desperate, desperate situation. And the heroism showed by those guys to try and get themselves out of there and look after themselves and stop themselves, you know, bleeding out and dying. Uh, especially uh, there's a guy, Tug Hartley, especially the medic. Incredible. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's almost a shame that the VC has to be awarded for, you know, action with the enemy because that is just the highest heroism. It, it's, it's a very evocative film. I remember watching it almost through the fingers of your hands because as a former soldier you just you just think that is just develops into an utter nightmare scenario and everything that can go wrong for those guys went wrong you know the uh the, the comms went down whoever deployed the helicopter sent a chinook instead of a what eventually rescued them was a black hawk with a wind. that's right yeah um in fact the first time i saw it cole i was i was watching it on an ipad with headphones in on a train and i think when the second ied went off i think i jumped half out the seat and I had to almost had you know people looking at you. I had to stop watching it because it just caught me unawares. Wasn't expecting it. Yeah, yeah, very, very good stuff. <laughs> so, what's your luxury item? My luxury item is an homage to the to the great Kev O'Keefe. Uh, my luxury item is a Trangia cooker. Ah, I thought you were going to say a tranny. <laughs> good, good man. That means that means that means that can be many different things. Um, no, a Trangia <laughs> cooker because 
people would turn up with all sorts of fancy, you know, jet bowls have got their place, don't get me wrong, you know, and MSR whisper lights and, and peak stoves with their Coleman fuel, which, which, which health and safety really should have got a grip of because I, I, saw, I saw some people, you know, with flash burns from those things. <laughs> um, but uh, but the uh, the Trangia with its meths and it and it would survive the famous Kev O'Keefe drop test, which was if anyone thought they had a good bit of kit, you know, a, a new mug, a new cooker, or whatever, Kev would put it through the Kev O'Keefe drop test, which was to lob it about forty foot into the air uh, yeah, I, 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 over, over hard standing. Trangia always worked at the end. You just unpick, you know, unbent it, put it back on, worked it. So it's a bit bulky. Wouldn't wouldn't work in cold too well, but I, uh, it's yeah. al- almost indestructible. It, it we'll give you that. Well, it's more indestructible than everyone else's cooker. No, no, it's totally like you, mate. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, and it's always good to do it at the beginning the exercise. So they haven't got so it's hexy blocks for them. <laughs> <laughs> So thanks for that, Steve. So it's good you, to see the you, Tolly. Yeah, me next. I was just say, but it's interesting to see that uh, I know the bar at the HCC was often well used after an exercise on a, a weekend. So I'm surprised you never went for some port or an exquisite whiskey, Steve. <laughs> but you went for some. Pra- you went for something very practical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So my recommendation this week is a, a book called The Forgotten Soldier by Guy Sager, and I was actually got in a conversation this in one of our social media accounts with a listener and he said that talking about books from the 80s and he mentioned this and i remember back in the day it was one of those books that did the rounds of the, of the battery and the battery lines and originally it was passed off as an autobiography but this has been disputed over the years and even the author later admitted to some inaccuracies so it recounts the one eastern front as seen through the eyes of a young german soldier and Sager was a member of the Gross Deutschland division and saw action from Kursk to Kharkov. So what starts off as a race across the vast Russian steppes turns into an everyday story of survival as the winter descends on them and the change of seasons leaves them exposed because they're so badly equipped for a Russian winter. Uh, and as we discussed in the recent pod, the scale of death in this front is hard to comprehend. Five million casualties on the German side and nearly nine million in the Soviet side. So it was a brutal with no quarter given, and the book reflects this. And it wasn't unusual, actually, back in the 1980s, you'd be on like a comms exercise, so a non-tactical exercise, and we used to get in Land Rover and drive hundreds of k's apart and practice comms in Germany. And I remember one time I was in a wood, on the edge of a wood, setting up antennas, and we were approached by an old boy, who was probably in his 60s at that time, who asked if he could see our kit. And it turned out he was a veteran of the Russian campaign, and he was looking at our kit and marvelling at the sleeping bags and all the rest of it and telling us how he just slept in blankets and it wasn't unusual to get up in the middle of the night and find somebody frozen to death next to you. So that's it for me then, really. Kev, what's your choice this week? My choice is All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, oh, classic. Gosh. A classic. And it's also, it was, it was, it's fiction, but the author, and I'm going to try and pronounce his name, uh, Eric Marie Remark. I don't know if I've done that right, but I'm sure somebody will tell me. He was a German soldier during the First World War, but he changed his name uh, back into a French version. So it's through the eyes of his historical, so all the characters that he wrote about, uh, obviously were people that he had seen or met. And he wrote it in 1928, and it was the, a time when writers in Germany were starting to uh, put pen to paper about the First World War and the failings of the German Empire as it was and still was, which caused a bit of controversy. And then in 1932, 
obviously they made a film of it, which I think most people have seen. There was a remake of the film. Don't bother watching that one. That's not very that's good. With, that's with John Boy Walton in it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It's not the same. It's not the same. <laughs> You've got to watch the original, 1942. And after that, as the rise of the Nazis, they uh, they started to denounce some of the writers and some of the, uh, the film producers who had made sort of more historically correct films and wrote books about the First World War and some of the some of the issues, you know, uh, the failings of the, the German hierarchy. And they started making false claims about him, about his family. And eventually he had to go on the run. They, his books were banned in libraries and, and in public use. And they were part of the, when they started burning books in Germany, his his books were burnt. Um, he, he wrote other books as well. He then escaped uh, Germany with his wife, and, and in 1946 he became an American citizen. But there was a lot of, um, I think, in the 30s, a lot of bad blood about about the failings of the First World War, who was who was responsible for it, and obviously the Nazis had started to rewrite history. But a great book, absolutely. And it's a pacifist book. novel, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, that I think I think from the anti-war. First World War, both sides wrote in you know after the First World War, and people started talking about the horrors of the trenches. Uh, the horror stories, you know, and the, the, the dreadful waste of life and the tactics that we didn't use, which was basically get up, walk forward, get shot and die. All books were pacifist in one way because they were all anti-war because we'd never had a war on such a scale ever. Um, it was horrific. I agree. And the Nazis, the Nazis like to keep that myth going. That well, one, one of the things that gave rise to Nazis was the fact that the, there was this myth that they were let down by the government the, of the, the day. Stab, the yeah, stab yeah, in the yeah. back theory, wasn't it? They called it. That's yeah. right. Yeah, they yeah. were some, yeah. somehow the heroic chaps at the front were stabbed in the back by those back. Well, what we'll say, Kev, is I, I read that book when I was fifteen, and it is one of the three most depressing books I've read in my life. Um, and uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm not surprised that you chose that. That's that suits your happy-go-lucky personality, that though. <laughs> What the other two out of interest? I, I tell you what, when I was 15 at school, the English teacher made us read three books and in that year, and they were the most depressing books ever. Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. Oh, my God. Um, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Yeah, I've read that. That's very yeah, depressing. And then All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, but let's not forget, you were, the school schools you went to, we were just glad to get books. <laughs> You 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 burnt them. You burnt them not out of ideological reasons, Kev. You burnt them to keep no, warm. No, we didn't burnt you? to stay alive. So, <laughs> and and line up, line our shoes with holes in them, Kev. Yeah, didn't we? Well, that, that's that's what Lino was for. <laughs> Lino was waterproofing. That was pre Gore-Tex. Lino Gore-Tex, as it used to be known. Right. So, Steve, it's great to see you again, mate. And thanks for coming on the pod. Pleasure's all mine. It's been very, very enjoyable. Thank you very much for the opportunity. No, you're welcome, mate. And also thanks to our listener for the support and continued suggestions. Please keep them coming. And our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes as normal. You can find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to send a message to Kev, get out your carrier pigeon. Um, if you've downloaded us from iTunes and like the podcast... <laughs> or a what, Kev? First class stamp, that's all you need. <laughs> if you've downloaded some iTunes and like the podcast, it would be great if you could leave us a review or leave us a review anywhere as long as they're nice ones. And thanks again to Nick Beale for his continuing support and sponsorship to the series and offering technical help through his company, ISAR. And for those eligible ex-members of 473, please join the Special Observer Association and support their activities, including 
Marching, well, we use marching in a very loose term for ex-members of the battery, probably a casual amble at the Cenotaph Parade. And if you want to do that, give us a shout on social media and I'll put you in touch with the person who's organising it. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.